15th chapter of John. And if you remember last week, and you need to keep this whole chapter in mind because it did start off with the teaching of the true vine. Jesus said, I am the true vine. I am the vine, the true. And if you are a born-again Christian, you're a branch on that vine. And as a branch, you can either wither up and die. You don't have to produce fruit. You produce fruit not because you're in Christ, but because you dwell and abide in Him every day. As you accept the forgiveness of your sins and claim the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, as you walk in obedience and fellowship with Him during the course of a given day, that's when you're the fruit-bearing Christian. And so all that He's going to say in what we have today is a result of this experience that we've had with Jesus Christ. It makes us a branch, a part of the true living vine. And these are things He expects of us, things that He wants us to learn, things that He expects us to act on once we've learned them. And I think the important thing to get out of here is once again to remember that this is just before He dies. He's going to die within the next day, the next day. And so the last things He says to us are the things He wants above everything else for us to remember, for those 11 to remember. They would be that little nucleus group who would carry on after He was gone, physically gone from them. And when He speaks to them, He's speaking to us today. And He wants us to know that this is the urgency of the hour. This is the thing He would want us to have. It's so implanted in our hearts and so active in our lives that we would be that light in the world and that we would be able to carry out His redemptive purpose for the world. And so if you keep all those things in mind and you come down to what He was saying in verse 11 when He said, I've spoken all these things to you not to put a kind of burden on you that you can't bear. He's already told us. He's confided in them some things that they're going to, to need to know that they didn't know at that point. For instance, there's going to be a power within. The Holy Spirit, your divine helper, your advocate is going to come. And He's going to take up residence within you, the continuing presence of Christ living in the believer. And that power will be given to each one of us just as much as we'll claim. The power will be given to do everything He gives us to do. There's not one thing He commanded that we do not love, uh, obedience, any commandment that He gave us to do, He gave us the power to accomplish that in our lives. And so He says, all this has not been put on you to be a burden, to weight you down. He said just the opposite. I give you peace. I give you my peace. And then He says, I give you my joy. In the midst of all of, the, of what they were going to have to experience as the eleven and all that we experience as Christians today, He said, I want it to all to be encompassed around a joy-filled heart and soul. Above everybody else in this world, no matter what the circumstances are, we as Christians should be full of joy. I mean, we should be an uplifting influence. In influence. All right, so he says, this joy that I give you, because it's my joy, that's active in your life as a result of your relationship with me, the true vine. But this joy is the kind of joy that overflows and spills and causes everybody around to be touched by his joy, by his peace coming from within the believer. And then he said, he told him, he said, no greater love. When he commands them again, once again, he starts, he says, this is my commandment. Love one another as I've loved you. And I got to thinking, this is what really began to probe my thinking. Why in those last hours did he feel the necessity for saying over and over and over again, love one another? You know, why did he, why couldn't he have just said it one time? You know, why couldn't he have had the assurance that he could have depended on his people to love one another? Have you ever thought about why, during this portion of Scripture, he says over and over again, love one another? So let's keep that in mind. <coughs> right, he says, love one another and be willing, if necessary, to lay down your life, to lay down your life, 
to be so sacrificial in your giving and your loving that you're willing to put yourself in the back seat and love so completely like he loved us. And then he gives a claim. He said, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And the last commandment he gave is, if you love one another. You're my friends if you love one another. Okay, so let's read a portion and then uh, see what comes from it. You're my friends if you do what I command. I call you servants no longer. A servant does not know what his master is about. I've called you friends because I've disclosed to you everything that I've heard from the Father. You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that shall last, so that the Father may give you all that you ask in my name. This is my commandment to you, that you love one another. Well, you can tell already that this has just really gotten to me. And I'm not even sure that I can share what I want to share. I just want you to stop. And let's pray again. Every now and then this happens. How many times? Once or twice? I don't know. Look at some things that we were chosen for and called for. Maybe that'll get me. I think the devil would do anything in the world to keep me from sharing this today. I'm convinced of that. And I knew it before I came. Because he had worked in such a real way to get me not to do this. Okay, we were chosen for joy. Thank you. Oh, this is going to be a tape and oh. <laughs> Listen, when I cry, I wish I could just do it with just a few little whimpers or something. I don't. If I ever get started, forget it. I'm gone. <laughs> maybe for the rest of the hour. But, but maybe that'll be used to impress on you. The fact that it's something that's really, I mean, it's just done something to me that I can't explain. Okay, we're chosen for joy. <laughs> it's a contradiction by terms. A joy-filled person is not a person who never sheds a tear. That can be compassion, and it can be a very real experience. But a gloomy Christian, one who's just always going around with a frown on their face, this is the exact opposite of what he's talking about when he says joy. Joy comes in concern, and joy comes in love. Can we chosen for love, that we love one another, not compete, not dispute, not quarrel. So why don't you turn to Romans 13.10. Let's just see how long it takes me to get completely composed. That'll be something to watch. <laughs> oh, I knew it before I came. I do this every Easter when I teach about the cross or, or the Garden of Gethsemane. You can forget it. You can hang it up. If you don't want to hear me cry, just see me cry. Just don't come. 
Okay, who has Romans 13, 10? You read that again really loud. Love does no wrong to one's neighbor. It never hurts anybody. Therefore, love makes all the Okay, Jesus called us for love, that we love one another, that we never cause anybody one moment's anguish or one moment's pain as children of his. He called us to be his friends. That's an intimate relationship. You know, we don't have a lot of good friends, those really close friends. Many of us have a lot of friends, but not too many of us have that close friend, that one that we can go and confide in and just share anything and everything with and know that they're going to love you in spite of that and know that they're just going to listen to you and care about you in spite of it. Jesus said, I call you friends. He didn't say, you call me friend. He said, I call you friends. We call him Lord. We call him Master. And he's a friend to us by virtue of the fact that he reached down and made us his friends. We didn't ever look for him. We didn't ever reach out to him as a friend. He reached to us as a friend. So he says, I'm going to call you friends. I'm going to make of you a possibility to have an intimate relationship with me as a friend. And then he said, I've chosen you to be ambassadors authorized to go in my name and to stand in this world with all the authority of the Godhead backing you up as my ambassadors. And he said, I've chosen you to be advertisements that you bear fruit and that fruit be shown to the world, the fruit of, of the Spirit, the fruit that's joy and love and peace and long-suffering and temperance and self-control. All of these things are to be an advertisement of the Christian faith and of the life within you. He chose us to be privileged members of the family of God he chose us, chose us to be the ones who could be so privileged that we could go into his presence and ask what we will when we're abiding and dwelling in the vine, when we're obedient to his commands, when we love one another, we can go boldly into his presence and ask what we will. That makes us privileged members of the family of God. Okay, fortunately, I'm feeling very calm. <laughs> so we made it through that one. Um, Okay, so now let's go back up a little bit. You're my friends if you do what I command you. I called you servants no longer. A servant does not know what the master is about. I've called you friends because I've disclosed to you everything that I ever heard from my father. And what had he disclosed to these 11? They were the only ones he had told about the betrayal, and they were the only ones he had told about the father's house and all the abiding places, the, the mansions in the father's house. They were the only ones he had told that he was going to be raised on the third day that he was coming back again. They were the only ones he had confided in, that the Comforter was coming to, to give them strength and power from within. So these are the things he's talking about when he says, I disclose to you everything, everything you're going to need to know, everything that the Father has shared with me that he wants you to know, I've disclosed to you. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Not one of us ever went out looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us, and you know this by your own personal experience, Every single one, most of us, with some sort of ordeal that was more than we can handle. And then we went looking for him, wooing us and loving us for years. And then all of a sudden, one day, we recognize that love and we respond to it. But up until, well, I don't know of anybody who has ever just, something inside them caused them just, without ever hearing the word of God proclaimed or reading anything from pages of scripture, or hearing a testimony of a friend. I don't know one person who has ever gone out deliberately looking for Jesus Christ. He said, I chose you. I was the one who began looking for you from the very beginning. 
before you were born, he began to plan things for our lives and plan ways he could get his message of love to us through the word, through the, the ministry, through a friend, through the scripture, through many, many means. But he did the choosing. Let's don't give ourselves credit for anything like that. He said, I appointed you to bear fruit. I chose you for a reason. I chose you that when you're in me, a part of the living vine, that you would bear fruit. If there's not this fruit being born, then what a disappointment we must be to him. And the fruit that lasts is the fruit that satisfies God. It's not the fruit as we see it as men. It's the fruit that satisfies God. That's the fruit of, of genuine service and the fruit of souls and the fruit of the Spirit. Do you remember we had that last week? Three different areas that we have insight into what he's talking about when he says fruit. Love and joy and patience. Not the things of the world. Not the lust of the flesh. These don't satisfy God at all. Not things done in the flesh as Christians. These don't satisfy God. Not things that are done for the glory of man. These don't satisfy God. Not things that are done because of duty. Those never did satisfy God. But the things that are done unselfishly for Christ's sake because we are a part of that living vine and we're dwelling in him daily because of that this is just a, an overflow that comes out the service is there the fruit of the spirit is there the souls are being won because of this relationship and that's what pleases God he says that's what you've been chosen for to bear that kind of fruit that last that kind of fruit that will not be the wood hay and stubble that's burned up on the day of judgment and so he says <clears throat> again this is my commandment to you love one another and don't you know he had such insight into the fact that though he had been total love he had been incarnate love and they had been in his presence for three and a half years three and a half years though they had been in the presence of that pure love he knew that when he was gone without this indwelling spirit they couldn't make it they could never love one another unless he controls the light there is no way to love one another and he must have known that the world was going to begin to attack them, begin to attack them, not only from without, the world attacks from within. And Satan is never off his guard when he comes to wanting to break down what Jesus said was the greatest of his commandments, and that's to love one another. And he must have known this was going to happen because he kept saying over and over again, this is the only way you're going to stand. So without love, you can't stand. Without love as an individual, if there's no love in you, you can't make it. If there's no love within a fellowship, we'll never make it. You see? And he knew that. And he knew that's where the devil would attack. He knew the devil would come in and he would begin to try to eat away and destroy love for one another. And because of this, Jesus said, these are the last things I say to you over and over again. If you don't ever get one thing, remember the love only comes as you abide and dwell in me daily. But when it's there, there's no foe from without, no foe from within that can ever destroy you if you have this kind of love. So you see the urgency of it. You see the reason he had to say it over and over again. And then he goes into why he had to say it. He's got him grounded now in this truth. And then he begins in verse 18 to say, If the world hates you, it hated me first, as you know well. If you belong to the world, the world would love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, because I've chosen you out of the world, that's the reason we don't belong to the world. We're in the world, the Bible teaches, but not of the world. And the reason we don't belong to the world is simply by virtue of the fact that he chose us out of the world. It's through everything he did that allowed us a residence in a, a superior abiding place on the vine 
All right, so he says, if the world, the world would not never love you because you're my own. Remember, the world hates you because they hated me first. And one of the greatest things we will ever learn is that when somebody begins to attack and somebody begins to really hate, and that hatred is the world. That has nothing to do with God. That all has to do with the world. And don't ever become so self-oriented that you begin to think that somebody's giving you a hard time. The scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture teaches they're still attacking the Christ. They're still attacking him. And when they attack the instrument, the one human instrument, they're at that time doing exactly the same thing that they did to him when he was incarnate in the flesh. They're beginning to attack the Christ. And that's the world. That's the world. All right, it says, because you do not belong to the world, because I've chosen you out of the world, for that reason the world hates you. We can never live at peace in a world. We're not of the world anymore. And if we blend so beautifully with the world that no persecution ever comes our way, we never show enough light in a world for the darkness to hate us, to hate the light, then there's something very wrong with the way we're living as Christians. If we just go anywhere we want to go and just blend so beautifully, that's not the light, see? So we begin to separate. We begin to polarize with how much light how much fruit is being born out of our lives with how much we are suffering for his sake. Every time he came into the presence of the world, the world hated him. And when I mean hate, it's because you upset something. It's because you're not like them. And nobody ever likes anything that's different. Nobody ever likes anything that's going to threaten them in any way. And we have allowed the devil to make us so complacent. We've allowed the devil to take us and tell us these things are not bad and these things are not bad. And, and let's don't be too holy Joe over here. Let's don't do, be too gung-ho for Christ's sake. And let's just a little bit here and there is okay. And when this begins to happen is when we blend. We blend so you can't even tell us from anybody else. And that's when the world begins to enter the church. You see, we entered the world. And then the world entered the church. And we've got problems like you wouldn't believe when we're trying to go forward under the leadership of Jesus Christ and the world is right in the midst of it. He said, remember what I said, a servant's not greater than his master. You can't expect to live your life and never have any persecution. You're not greater than he was. And if we're not greater than he was, then why do we expect a bed of roses as Christians? Why do we expect nothing to ever happen to us? Why do we expect nobody to never give us a hard time? And if they ever do, we want to run, jump under the juniper tree. <laughs> we want to go hide, don't we? If anybody ever gives us a minute's trouble, our anguish, we begin to ask why. Why did the Lord let this happen? We're good. You know, we're doing his work. And then when it begins to happen, we forget. We forget what he taught in the last hours. He taught, they don't hate you. They hate the light within you. They hate the vine you're attached to. And remember that and count it joy. That's how you can count it joy when you're persecuted. Do you remember the beatitude? Blessed, oh, the bliss of the one who's persecuted for Christ's sake. For the sake of the gospel, oh, the bliss of the one who suffers persecution because of the stand he takes for Christ. It's a tremendous beatitude. He said, you expect this, and happy is the one, blessed is the one. Oh, the bliss of the one who has this opportunity to identify with the suffering of Christ. 
it's a tremendous experience. And Paul said, I count it joy when this happens to me. I count it joy. Jesus said, I give you the joy. My kind of joy. Paul said, I claim that joy in times of persecution, in times of suffering. I claim that joy, and I walk in that joy. He said, as they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's pretty emphatic. He didn't say they might. If you go out and give them a hard time, he said they will persecute you. They will follow your teaching as little as it's on my account that they treat you like this because they do not know the one who sent me. The persecutor, the persecutor, I don't care what mask he wears, the one who's the persecutor has nothing to do with God the Father, the scripture says. When that becomes a part and parcel of a person's life, I don't care who he is or who she is or what place of responsibility they have. When they become so consumed with persecuting, persecuting, and especially a Christian, they identify and wear a big label saying, world. And you know, the Bible has a strange way of polarizing. I mean, it really does. It doesn't give me gray area. You either love him or you hate him. You either follow him or you don't follow him. You either serve him or you don't serve him. There's no middle ground as far as the teaching of the Bible is concerned. And so the persecutor separates from the persecuted. If there's a persecuted one, then there's naturally a persecutor. And we polarize right there and we find the world on one side. And the hatred one has to suffer because of their stand for Christ on the other side. But remember never to take it so personally. That's when you get on your knees and you thank him. You thank him. You say, I really do thank you. That somehow or the other, somebody has been so threatened by the light and the darkness is being endangered by the light. And that very threatening act has caused retaliation. If I had not come and spoken to you, they would not be guilty of sin. Here's the responsibility, the knowledge and the privilege of responsibility brings about responsibility. The more we learn, the more we're accountable for. Did you know that? And as a group together, we've been studying for a year and a half, I guess a little over a year and a half. And you know, all along the way, we, we really felt like the Lord had us in different studies for, for a reason. I did. I've always felt that everything we've been in from the very beginning, from Ruth to Esther, Hebrews, first and second Timothy, was for a reason. And it's just beginning to unfold, the clarity of it all. It's beginning to just take shape like I've never seen it before. We've been studying those books for a reason. And it comes right down to what it's teaching in John, the 15th chapter. If I hadn't come and told you these things, if you hadn't learned them, it wouldn't be nearly the responsibility of keeping them as you have now that you've heard them. You've heard them. I've taught you these things. Now, what will you do about them? You know. What will you do with what you've learned? Now, we find in about two different places. Let's look at a couple of places where the Bible does teach their degrees of punishment. And all the first three chapters of, of Romans, the chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, deal with the fact that nobody escapes. We are all sinners. Every single person, the heathen in Africa, and the educated, the illiterate, all of us, no, by virtue of the fact of God's creation, and by virtue of the fact that we have been given a conscience within us, we know right from wrong. Everybody does. Now, there are degrees of punishment. If you'll turn to Matthew 11:22, and somebody turn to Hebrews 10:28 and 29. And the first one who gets Matthew 11:22 to conserve time, please just read it. 
will be better off on the judgment day than you and Capernaum, through highly honored, though highly honored, shall go down to hell. For if the marvelous miracles, am I on the right one? Right, uh-huh. For if the marvelous miracles I did in you had been done in Sodom, it would still be here today. Right, he, he's saying the, that Capernaum, who housed Jesus, I mean, that was his, his place he centered, located out of. The center of his ministry was in Capernaum. And they saw, they heard him teach. They saw him in the flesh. They saw the great miracles that he performed and the signs and the wonders and the deeds that he did. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, will not be nearly as responsible as Capernaum. They're, they will have a lesser degree of punishment for their rebellion against them. They were destroyed to be sure. But their rebellion was out of almost a sin of ignorance. They had some people, some prophets who were uh, preaching to them. Lot should have been more active than he was there, living right in the midst of them. But see, what Lot did was he went in and blended with them. And at the end of the whole time he lived there, he never counted for anything. His influence didn't count for anything. We don't even have, have any indication that his family was one to faith in Christ as a result of his influence in that city. But we do know that he blended so beautifully with the world that they didn't even have that witness given to them. God sent Lot there for a reason. If he allowed him to be there, it was for a reason. It was to witness to that community as to God, Jehovah God. All right, now Capernaum didn't have that excuse. These people lived in horrible immorality, but Cap Capernaum had housed the Son of God, the incarnate love, And they rejected. And when they rejected, how much more responsible they were for living in love and obedience than even Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, who has Hebrews 10, 28, and 29? He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much soul punishment, suppose you, shall he be thought worthy, who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant, with which he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Right. How much more responsible is the one who's under the blood of the covenant? And this is Joy's painting over here, but I, I thought it couldn't have been a more perfect time to use it than this, because this is this is a, a portrayal, a depiction of the Old and New Covenant, of the Sodom and Gomorrah back here, and of the Capernaum down here, of the one who didn't experience the, the blood of Christ, the experience of the blood of Christ, as opposed to the one who took it and received it and trampled underfoot out of disobedience the blood of Christ after it had been spilled. And so in here you see the light, and you see the people over here in darkness. These are the people who choose to stay in darkness. They may have all their affluence. They may end up with nothing in their hands but a house and, and a car and, and an accumulation of things, but they will not have any light. They'll live in darkness. And when the light breaks around the person who comes to the cross and receives Christ, and the light breaks, that light begins to dispel the darkness, and that's where the hatred comes from. And then once that happens, these people will always invariably attack this person as long as he walks in the light. As long as he walks in the light, that persecution will be there. And that's a place of responsibility that comes. That it's never been told us to do this in our own strength. It's been told that we have that one who will come, who will be sent by the Father and the Son with the endorsement of Godhead, who will come and give us the power to live in and through this. All right, so let's ask just for a minute, what is the world? When we talk about the world hating you, you know, we need to kind of understand what the world is. It's not talking about a globe, and it's not talking about the universe. It's talking about that order, a system of humanity that's turned its back on God. 
the order or system of humanity who's turned their back on God. And remember I said a while ago, you're polarized as far as the Bible is concerned. You either are for him or you're against him. You're either all the way for him on the one side or you're compromising so with the world on the other side that you count for nothing. There's no light there and there's no fruit there. And that's the disappointment above all disappointments to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so let's look at some verses of Scripture. James 4, 4. Impress upon us the need for understanding what the world is and what he thinks about the person who is going to compromise with the world. And one of the best portions of Scripture is James 4, 4. Would somebody read that? Anybody who gets it. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever by world is the enemy of God. All right, and he just told us we're his friends if we're a branch on the vine. We're his friends. And he says if, if you're a friend of the world, you're at enmity with him. You're not a friend of his. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of his at the same time is what he's saying here. And he says this is spiritual adultery. What happens is how many of you would like for your husbands to say, now listen, I really, I'm, you know, I love you and I'm going to put my arms around you and hold you very tight and take care of you, but once a week I'm going to go out and put my arms around somebody else. And I'm going to hold them just as tight and I'm going to love them for a little while. I won't come back to you. I'm going to come back to you. You're still my wife. How many of us would stand for that for a minute? Would you? <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> well, if that's a human analogy, then how much more so is what he's teaching in James 4, 4, when he says, you are my, we have pledged ourselves to him. When we came to him and received him as our personal Lord and Savior, we became the bride. He's the bridegroom, and we became a part of the bride. We're married to him. And no more would he stand for us going out seven days, six days a week, and putting our arms around the world. I mean, we just love the world. We just blend. We just make them so comfortable. We're just, you know, we're just abiding in the world six days. But then that seventh day, we're going to come, and Lord, we're going to put our arms around you today. We're going to love you today. He's not going to stand for that. He's not going to stand for that any more than we would stand for it if our husband spent six days with another woman and one day with us. It will never work that way. Okay, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And then somebody else will be looking up Colossians 3, 1 and 2. And another one, Romans 12, 2. Here's 1 John 2, 15 17. Stop loving this evil world and all that it, it offers you, for when, the when you love these things, you show that you do not really love God. And 16, too? Uh, I'm 17. For all these worldly things, these evil desires, the craze for sex, the ambition to buy everything that appeals to you, and the pride that comes from wealth and importance, these are not from God. They are from this evil world itself, and this world is fading away, and these evil, forbidden things will go with it, but whoever keeps doing the will of God will live forever. And how much time and energy do we put on the things of the world as opposed to the things of God? These things that are going to pass away, they're already under condemnation. They're, they're already been judged. How many of us are going to put our arms around this and love that, the biggest part of our life, and give such a little bit of time to the eternal things, to the eternal things, the things that are going to last forever. You see, we wear glasses that only look at the world, only look at time from a short span of time, a few years. We don't have any kind of awareness of the fact that the thing that counts is eternity. And what are a few years compared to eternity? 
Are you going to, to live and abide and throw your arms around a thing that's already con been condemned and already under judgment? Or are you going to put your arms around in love, the one who's going to keep you forever, the one you're really, truly married to? It can't be a compromise. It can't be two ways. Once that happens, you show, according to the scripture, you show that you love the other side. You love the world. You, you, you show your love for the devil instead of the love for God. Now, remember what the world is, those who are at enmity against God those who are at enmity against God and it says you're no friend of his if you love the world more than you love him all right Colossians 3 1 2 who has that one okay if ye then be risen with Christ seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God set your affection on things above not on things on the earth Okay, that one, I love, that's one of my favorite ones because I think that says it better than everything. It's the effect, what's in your heart? You know, we can choose to set our affections. That's one thing we have a choice about. We can choose each day to set our affections on things above instead of things on this earth. And I'm glad we have that choice to make. I'm glad that the world is not just, you know, placed on us and there's nothing we can do about it. We have a choice to make. If we set our thoughts and our energy on that which is of, of God, as opposed to that which is of the devil, then that's where we begin to live in the vine and dwell in the vine. All right, Romans 12, 2. You're not going to go through this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, we need a whole renewing of our minds. <laughs> we need a purging. We really need to have our whole thought patterns renewed. And the only way to do it is to get in here and read these things and study these things and allow them to be taught and impressed on us to a point where we have to choose. We have to choose which way we're going to go. And when you choose, if there's ever any doubt, in most things you know what's of the world and what's of God, right? You know, most things you know this is worldly and this is, this is spiritual and we don't have a great bill. But if there's ever any doubt, just ask yourself the question, is this of God or is it of the world? What's the basis for this? Whatever it is. Is it of God or is it of the world? Ask yourself that question. And you have the choice then of choosing between the two. For instance, if we ever have a time where you have to make a choice on Tuesday morning and it's a choice between two things that, ha that are God-designed, you know, God then there's no problem there. You're okay. But if you have to make the choice between a civic club and a Bible study, you see the difference? You choose which way you want to go. You choose the world or you choose the Lord. All right, if you've got to make a choice on Tuesday morning, you have an opportunity to go to a Bible study or you have an opportunity to go bowl. You ask yourself the question, which is of God? It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with bowling. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the civic club. It very simply means that when you come to a place where you have to choose, you better watch out what you choose because you line up at that point with the world and that's where you begin to, to blend and you begin to go down and you begin to cease to bear fruit and you begin to wither on the vine. The day you begin to choose the world over the things of God is the day you begin to wither on the vine. All right, so now let's, let's think about the hatred of the early Christians. They hated Jesus. Now, he knew they were going to hate the earth. They, he knew they were going to hate all of us if we would stand up and be, if we would follow this line of thinking, he, we would be hated too. If we lived like this, we'd have a lot of criticism and a lot of rejection, but we don't. 
All right, so what, the early, what they did to the early Christians, because they started out, now they, they had apparently, as far as we know from the Scripture, the disciples had not had the kind of persecution during the three and a half years they'd been with Jesus that Jesus had. They took it all out on Jesus. The disciples said, everywhere we go, there seems to be such power. And, and when the Garden of Gethsemane experience took place and the soldiers came in, Jesus said, leave them alone. Take me, I'm the one you want. And so they went off. And they stayed for all those days after he was crucified and resurrected to be sure they were in a house praying, but they stayed and they were untouched. They weren't in any real danger, apparently. Somebody could have found them and killed them if they were. The 40 days that he was on the earth, he had freedom to, to be with them. They were not just in, in closed places. There were times where there was a great crowd so they were still not that persecuted at that point. Uh, after he ascended back to be with the Father, they had the privilege of praying during that time. Nobody bothered them. But it was when the Holy Spirit came, like he was promised, on the day of Pentecost, and they were indwelled by this power. And that power drove them out to proclaim the crucified, resurrected Christ. And in that proclamation, that light began to shine from them, from their lives. And that's when they began to be beaten and murdered, stabbed, hung on a cross. On and on you went. I mean, they were flogged to death. They were shipwrecked. They were put out on islands by themselves. <laughs> they were persecuted. They were really persecuted. But you know the one thing they said about those Christians? Oh, how they loved one another. See, they had learned that lesson. They had learned well that there was nothing anybody could do to them if they, they were bound together in love. If they were bound together in love, there was nothing that could happen to them that would ever destroy this privilege they had of sharing Christ. So what would happen if you couldn't find anything wrong with these Christians and they were living like Christ lived, they were little Christ, they were living like Christ, they were loving, they were teaching, they were preaching a message of peace and a message of deliverance from whatever your problem was or your bondage was, then if you can't find anything wrong with somebody, you do what they did to Jesus. You make up some things, don't you? You go fabricate some things. You take some little something you might can find and you just embellish it and embellish it and take it. It doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't even pertain to anything when they get through with it. But it works because people are so eager. They are so eager to catch any little tidbit and love it. So what they would say about the early Christians who were doing nothing to anybody except doing what they had been commissioned to do was to preach Christ. They said, first of all, these Christians, and they were the Jews and the Romans, there were many Jews who were in on this, and they would go into the Roman government, and they would tell them these lies about them. They said they were insurrectionaries because they wouldn't. All Rome expected of its citizens in that known land, its empire, all they expected of you was that you burn incense once a year and say, Caesar's Lord. Well, see, the Christians wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. They said, Jesus Christ is our Lord. And we won't call anybody else Lord. We'll give tribute. We'll give, uh, you know, whatever the government requires as citizens of this government, of this land, of this empire. We'll give that. But we will not call Caesar Lord. He's not our Lord. And so they said they're insurrectionaries. All right, then they said they were cannibals. The early Christians were accused of being cannibals. Somebody got word that there was... Uh, a remembrance of him and you ate of his body and drank of his blood and they took that that last statement that he made just before he died and they said they're cannibals they eat his body and they eat they drink blood it's not what they were doing you see they made that up took something that was beautiful and made something that was a mockery out of it a lie 
All right, the next thing they did, they, they told them they practiced flagrant and, and promiscuous immorality. There's never been a group of people who were purer. In fact, this was the first time in that world anybody had ever preached purity, chastity. And when they lived these kinds of pure lives, gave up wives, they would have more than one wife. And they'd find Christ, and you would begin to live with one wife. And when all this began to happen, they had once a week a, a covered dish dinner. And when they'd bring in the covered dishes, they would call this an agape feast, a love feast. And so these who wanted to find a little tidbit, see, and go get them in trouble, took this. And they said, do you know what they're doing? They're having an agape love feast, orgies. They go in there together. And did you see what they do? Before they go in, they greet each other with a holy kiss, a kiss of peace. This was the custom in that day, that you greeted with a holy kiss. And that, they said, that's the sign that you're entering into the orgy. When you come together and you see somebody kiss, greet with a holy kiss, the kiss of peace, that means they're going in to enter into this orgy. What a lie. I mean, that was a plain old, outright, deliberate, malicious lie. They didn't even have any idea, apparently, what agape meant, and they should have known that. It was not eros. It wasn't an eros feast. That's what the world had. This was an agape feast, a God feast, a feast that honored God and they came together. Right, the last thing they said about them, the rumor that was passed, was that they tampered with family relationships. That's the only one that had a speck of truth in it. <laughs> I like that one, because that's the only one that really had any truth. It did tamper with family relationships because a husband would be saved and a wife would know. Children would be saved and the parents didn't know what they were talking about. And it would come into a, a home. And relationships were turned upside down and inside out. Came to know Christ. If all the family came to know, that whole family was turned inside out, upside down. So there was a little speck of truth in that. It does have the power to change a life in such a way that even within a family group, there can be persecution. Even within a family group, there can be tremendous persecution. Okay, Matthew 5, 10 and 12 is the beatitude I want us to hang on to right in here. These early Christians were accused, maliciously accused. Lies were spread about them. And you go back to this beatitude where he said, How blessed, oh, the bliss of those who have suffered persecution for the cause of right. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed you are when you suffer insults and persecution and every kind of evil lie is spread against you for my sake. Accept it with gladness and exultation. For you have a rich reward in heaven in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. That's taking up your place alongside Jesus Christ. It's taking your place alongside the prophets. And I'd rather be there than with the world, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you rather take your place beside him and beside the prophets than beside the world? The persecutor is always aligning himself with the world. There's no place in the Christian life for a person who would malign another Fellow Christian, there's no place for it. Anywhere in the pages of Scripture, you have identified and labeled yourself as the world. At that point, an enemy of God. Okay, so he says, we're responsible for this. He who hates me hates my father. It all goes back to the relationship to the father, the husbandman. Don't forget what the husbandman does, the keeper of the vine. Remember, he watches carefully. He never misses a thing. He knows who the persecuted one is. He knows who the persecutor is. He knows exactly what's going on at all times. And believe me, he will never allow anything to go uncared for, untended to. We learn that from the care of the vine. 
if I had not worked among them and accomplished what no other man had, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father. Remember this text in their law has come true. They hated me without a reason. This is the important thing. They hated me without a reason. It's not saying there that, these, that anybody was ever without sin. Like I said, first three chapters of Romans show that everybody has sinned and come short of the glory of God. But compared, compared to the sin that's in the life, when the light comes, when you've known Christ and you've known his teaching and you've known his love, compared to that, it's like there was no sin in the person's life who had not been exposed to all of this. When this exposure is there, then when that person deliberately sins, it's tremendous what the Bible teaches about the punishment of that person. And then after he said all this, like he doesn't want to leave us again with a burden, he does it one more time. This all sounds, you know, so hard. It all sounds like we've got nothing but troubles ahead of us, doesn't it? It sounds like we just haven't got any kind of life at all. But then he follows again, when your advocate comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, Spirit of truth. When the Holy Spirit is within the person's heart, there will be truth. There will never be any malicious slander. There will never be any gossip. There will never be any lies told and those sorts of, of deeds of the flesh done when the spirit of truth is indwelling a person and active in a person's life. It can't, it just can't happen.